Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I want to begin this year talking about an issue that's really, really important to the state of our nation, to the state of Christianity. And it is a movement that's not new. And it is also a movement that I don't understand very well. And so I actually have one of the perfect persons on to join us to talk about that. And the issue is Christian nationalism. And I have struggled recently, I should say, to uh, understand Christian nationalism. And I believe Paul will help us understand that. Let me introduce him. Paul is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He's co-chair of Global Politics and Security Concentration. He spent a decade as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff. He was an intelligence analyst for the CIA and a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. His writings have appeared in places like Foreign Affairs, The Dispatch, Washington Post, Mere Orthodoxy, and The Gospel Coalition. He is the author of The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And of course, that's what we're going to talk about. Hey, Paul, you've got quite the pedigree there of all kinds of things. I don't think anybody's going to question that you know what you're talking about on this topic. Oh, they do anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who disagree with you. I haven't read any reviews that are of your book yet that have disagreed. I'm sure they exist. They definitely do. But thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you on. And of course, this is not going to be the only episode on this show that we're going to end up talking about this particular topic because this is definitely related to the issues of liberty, freedom, human flourishing. I mean, you talk about, of course, all those ideas in your book. I want to talk a little bit about the issue that Americans, because that's pretty much our audience, and I apologize to those who are outside America looking in, listening to this show. Our our audience is predominantly American, and they, I think they understand the issues of nationalism all over the world. But as an American... There is a complexity to the kind of question when you're asked, like, let's say, at a 4th of July party or on any other sort of patriotic day that you're with family or you're talking about it and people say, do you love your country? What is the complexity behind that sort of statement in your mind? Mm. Well, just to answer the question, I do. I love my country. And I think it's actually a virtue. It's a positive virtue to be grateful for the institutions, the lives, the homes, and yes, the country that surrounds us and that kind of brings us up into forms of flourishing. Mm-hmm. Now, you said, what are the complexities there? Because whenever you ask, do you love your country? We always ought to ask, are our loves rightly ordered? And there's a history here, I think, of American Christians sometimes not ordering their loves rightly and letting the love of our country turn into idolatry and what I call in the book, nationalism, Christian nationalism. Mm. And so, yes, there is some complexity there. We have to be careful how we love. Do we love rightly? Do we love in a well-ordered way? When someone asks you, do you love your country? And you say, yes, I love my country. You don't always have the chance to, when I say you, I mean, just generally one might say that. And I would say, because my dad considers himself really patriotic and he loves his country. But when I say I love my country and he says he loves his country, he means something a little bit different. He's a lot more in the more nationalist crowd. I don't know how he would intellectually classify himself in that regard. 
but he's more in that crowd. And I think that's where a lot of this confusion really comes. Would you agree with that? Yes. As I said, there's different ways of loving our countries and loving everything. Mm -hmm. I think maybe there are some American Christians who think that it's unproblematic. They're like, of course I love my country. And to them, Mm -hmm. there's no possibility that it could be wrong or that there is anything to guard against. And there's maybe the complexity. There are things to guard against here, particularly when you learn more of the history of Christianity in America and the way that it's been wrongly understood in ways that have been damaging for our country. So that's kind of the where I'd take the conversation. Yeah, I think a lot of times for people who it's, and again, I don't want to throw everybody who thinks certain ways under the bus, but the concept that you love your country means that you just sort of don't question what its government does. Like a how dare you kind of moment of like, well, how you dare you question that our government is doing the wrong thing? Don't you understand that our government, our institutions that this country is founded on it has our best interest in mind and how dare you challenge this or what are you some sort of communist like that sort of seems to be the rhetoric in the like in that way of thinking yeah my country right or wrong but my country right right that's the old phrase and we should absolutely reject that because we never accept something right or wrong we always want the right and to love your country rightly when you love anybody you desire their good that's what mm-hmm. biblical agape love means to desire someone's good So if I love my country, I want the best for my country, which also means I wanted to stop doing bad things if Uh indeed it's doing anything bad. And it's important that we love wisely. We love critically. We we love with discerning eyes to see if indeed there's wrong things that we should lovingly desire our country not to do Uh and ways that our country could be better than it is. So your book was published in 2022. And of course, the milieu of our culture is that the pro-Trump even after the fact that he's not even our president anymore, is still sort of on the rise in a lot of ways. We'll talk probably about Trump here in a little bit. But why this book now? And why is nationalism happening right now? Like, why is there this big... This didn't seem on my radar as much until maybe middle of 2022. And I just was caught by surprise on it. And it just seems like it is a growing threat. And there were people saying, oh, hey, there's this threat, Christian nationalism. And... I was like, eh, eh, it's no big deal. They don't control the media, so I shouldn't pay attention. But why should we? (laughs) So I started this book way back in 2016 when I recognized that I didn't really understand a lot of stuff going on in my country, particularly on the political right. And I I also felt, I sort of sensed that there was these long burgeoning trends that were coming to the fore in a newly powerful way. And what I found in my research is that's exactly right, that nationalism is not new. Nationalism, as we understand it, dates back two centuries to the Napoleonic era. American nationalism isn't new, particularly American nationalism based on race or religion Mm. is as old as this country is. What happened in the last generation is that sort of proponents of a traditional sense of American identity became more partisan and it became sort of limited to the political right as a reaction against what was happening on the left. And a lot of this sort of took place within the Christian right. The Christian right is essentially a nationalist movement that advocates the restoration of what they think is a traditional notion of American identity. And they had some good ideas. It was Christian nationalist, but also Christian Republican, small r Republican as well, and advocated for some good stuff, pro-life movement, religious liberty. But there was also a nationalist undercurrent there. And then it got sort of hyper-accelerated just in the last, I'd say, two decades with the acceleration of globalization, immigration, the 2008 financial crisis, 9-11, two failed wars, first African-American president, Obergefell, 
Mm. So there's this, this huge tumult of cultural and political change and economic change in our country that seems to be getting faster. And nationalism is a reaction against all of that. That's why it's really come to a fever pitch just in the last recent years, because the cultural change is coming to a fever pitch. And nationalism and I'd say progressivism are kind of parasitical symbionts. They feed off of each other. Mm. And the more progressivism pushes for change, and also the more the world changes just because of structural factors, the more nationalism pushes back in reaction. And Trump absolutely understood that. He absolutely understood the feeling on the right, not so much the ideology, but the feeling and almost desperation to recover what they believed our country was. Mm. I understand nationalism is fueled by this kind of nostalgia for what they believed used to be true about America. And I keep stressing what they believe because I'm not quite sure it ever actually was that. Mm. But nationalism taps into that sort of myth of what America used to be. You mentioned Obama, the election of our first black president in that list of things that sort of helped accelerate it. I realize you and I just met like 10 minutes ago before this conversation, <laughs> but if I were to tell you that I didn't during the time and I still have a hard time realizing or maybe not even realizing, but admitting or acknowledging or agreeing that Obama's race had a whole lot to do with why he was opposed. I heard the left during the Obama years talk about all of this sort of race-coded anti-Obama policy stuff. And it didn't seem to me that what he was talking about had really a whole lot to do with his race. I mean, there might have been a few things that he was saying, phrases that I now look in retrospect that he was calling out of a little bit more in black culture. And so maybe there was some anti-Obama slash anti-black sentiment taking shape. But it just seemed to me that it was all about socialism. It wasn't really about his race. What was I missing? In other words, you're saying you didn't think it was about race then, but now right. you're wondering. And you're saying, you've mentioned that, you, and you brought it up a little bit in your book, not a whole lot, but you brought it up. And I'm just sort of like, so during the Obama years, was there a lot of blatant racism that came to the fore? Or was that just the left's sort of boogeyman at yeah. the time? Gosh, you do want to dive right into like the hardest topics here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> race and American religion. It's such a hard thing to talk about in a careful and nuanced way. American religion is racialized, mm -hmm. which what I mean is that our religious identities are actually shaped by our racial identity, not the other way around, which isn't good, but that's simply the truth of it. You look at any kind of study of how American religion is practiced, it's practiced differently by white Americans than it is by black Americans and by Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans. So our religion is racialized. Our categories of thought, the way we perceive the world, the way we filter information, our value systems are all racialized. I'm not saying racist, I'm saying racialized. It means it mm -hmm. differs along our race. So every political issue can be racialized in that same way. The way white Americans think about immigration is just different than the way black Americans, Hispanic Americans, mm. Asian Americans think about immigration. Right. And yep. so if a politician stands up and says, I stand for immigration restriction, that will actually sound racist to a lot of people, regardless of what's in the heart of that politician. And the politician might actually mean it in a coded racist way or might not, but it will sound that way to many audiences. Mm. That's what makes it so hard to talk about lots of political issues in America because so many things sound racialized to different audiences. And I think that some issues are kind of more intrinsically racialized just because of the history. If you stand up and say law and order, you better be aware that that phrase was absolutely deployed in racist ways in American history. And so I think it's incumbent on us to take a bit longer time and say, look, we stand for 
peace and security in our communities and neighborhoods in a way that doesn't give rise to police brutality against African-Americans. Like you need to kind of add that extra part to make Mm, sure you're saying the right thing. So you asked, what were you missing during the Obama years? I think there was a lot of, I'm going to make up a word here because I have a PhD and that's what academics do. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Sort Sort of sublimated racism. I'm not even sure if that's the right way to describe it. It seems to me that white Americans, we generally are pretty uncomfortable talking about race feel beat up about it and just want to kind of like not think in those categories. And so we kind of put it in the background or tuck Mm. it underneath, but it's always there. And even when we're not sort of conscious of it, the racialized aspect to public policy is always there. And if you just look at sort of polling data, it shows that the way Americans think about these things differs along race. And then when you introduce Christianity, it actually makes things even worse, not better. That white Christians in America are even (laughs) sort of more racialized in their attitudes Hmm. than white non-Christians or non-white Christians. And so that's how race inevitably is part of the conversation in a way that's kind of hard to talk about and even hard to detect. Did that make sense? It really does. And what I really liked was your example about law and order. And I'm, you know, having done a little bit of dive into critical theory, critical race theory in the last year myself, I've understood at least that there are words that in our history have meant certain racialized things. Yep. And again, I it's funny, that word racialized, I believe you quote Divided by Faith, the book by, I can't remember, the Emerson and Smith. Yeah, Michael and I had to read that in seminary, and I remember coming across the word racialized as probably the best word to describe without being pejorative or non-pejorative yep. or praiseworthy about something. And so I really appreciate you using that word as opposed to like racist or whatever, like come up with a whatever neologism you you want. It's a really good term to use. And you're right. We're affected by it, whether we like to or not, whether or not there's any sort of animosity there at all. I realized that question on Obama took us on a five minute little detour there, but it was important for me to ask that because I do know that in your book, it doesn't feature strongly, but it features enough that white Christians do need to understand what amount of racialization is happening with Christian nationalism and even just nationalism in general. And there's a whole larger conversation to go on there. And I felt like that might have been part of the phenomenon that I wasn't able to see during the Obama years because I didn't care. I actually, and I'll, I'll admit this, I actually woke up on election day or the day after election day knowing that Obama was elected. And I thought, kind of proud that, okay, now we have our first African-American president. Like, that's pretty cool. That's a milestone. Whether you want to, whether you want Obama to be the person or whatever his policies to say that that is a major milestone for a lot of people and for this country. And so you can hate the policies of the man and whatever else happened, but that factoid is important. So let's bring it back to your book. I told you off air that I was a little disappointed after the first couple pages because I realized I'm only getting about a third of the trilogy you're planning to write. So Tell us about the book a little bit and then what its main argument is. So the book is about Christian nationalism. It's part of a much broader argument that will ultimately, I hope, Lord willing, someday be about ordered liberty and how Christians can and should engage with our earthly kingdoms. So it's a trilogy of political theory, Christian political theory. First volume faces rightward and critiques the idolatries on the right. Second volume, I hope to write about the idolatries on the left. Uh, working title is The Religion of American Progress, What's Wrong with the Progressive Left? And then volume three will kind of lay out some sort of answer. 
I looked at the right first because Jesus says to look at the plank in your own eye before looking at the moat in your friend's eye. And so I, I'm on the right. You know, I grew up on the right, voted Republican my whole life until 2016, and still kept myself part of that community. I'm still right of center. My own views haven't changed much, but I think that the Republican Party has changed pretty drastically. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to examine kind of my tribe, so to speak, my people, my movement, American evangelicalism and its relationship to politics. And what I found is that there's a lot of nationalism in our politics. That was the best way to describe it. It's not conservative. And there's people out there now saying the same thing. There's people saying, look, we're not conservative anymore. We're something else. We're nationalists Mm -hmm. or national conservatives. So I don't think it's actually controversial to say that. I am still conservative myself. I still believe in the stuff we talked about before 2016. And the new stuff, I think, goes by the label nationalist. And that's just simply believing that our country has a fixed, specific cultural identity and that our government should keep it that way, Mm. right? That's what nationalism is. It's belief that there's a specific cultural identity, in our case, Anglo-Protestant or or some people to say we're a Christian nation. So it's some combination of Christianity and maybe a kind of a European heritage. Mm -hmm. And since we talked about race, just to put a pause here, the best advocates of nationalism talk about culture rather than race or theology. So they do try to keep a distinction between nationalism and white nationalism or theocracy, right? They try to make that distinction just to give them their due credit. Yeah. When I think about the idea of nationalism just on a sort of street level, you've done all this research and you even bring in the academic scholars. But when I think about all these things, I'm just like, well, fixed from what point in our history? (laughs) Like, which part of our history do we want to go back to? Because it seems like the history of America has morphed in a number of ways. And even progressives who long for the economic flourishing of the 50s, but they wouldn't want to go back to pre-civil rights era. You know, like everybody wants to be nostalgic about something that they believe was the case. And on just a very practical level, I'm just like, well, first of all, why should we go back there? And second of all, was it really as good as you think it was? But you engage with a handful of actual academics who like make a more like substantive defense of nationalism and even Christian nationalism. So what are some of the more stronger defenses of nationalism that people are going to come across? Yeah, so I engage with like Samuel Huntington and Yoram Hazoni, Nigel Bigger, Rossi Reno, Rich Lowry. And I think the strongest arguments they make is something like this. It's undeniable that we have a culture, that we have a unique identity. And we should embrace that. It's a good thing. And it's justified for us to try to defend who we are. Why shouldn't we say, this is who we are, and we're going to defend it through things like immigration restrictions, through promoting our cultural identity in our schools, in our civic ceremonies. And because our identity is also Christian, we also know that this makes us a better country. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so we should, in fact, seek to be uniquely Christian, honor God. And one more argument, this is also the foundation of our democracy. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows that Christians invented democracy, more or less. Again, this is what they say. Yeah. And if we lose our unique Anglo-Protestant or Christian identity, we will also lose our experiment in free government. You you need to have a moral people, a virtuous people to sustain free institutions. So to sustain American identity and American democracy, we have to remain a Christian people. That's their argument. How much of this depends on people thinking that the founders wanted to found a Christian nation? Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a strong connection, a strong overlap between those beliefs. 
that the founders were all Christians, that the uh-huh. Constitution embodies biblical principles, that, yeah, as you said, they intended to found a Christian nation. There's a lot of folks who then look at the states at the time of the founding and note that the states had established churches. There was an established Congregationalist church in Massachusetts until the 1830s. Uh-huh. The First Amendment didn't actually affect the states at the time. And so a lot of people say, maybe we should go back to something like that and allow a greater admixture of church and state, just like the founders intended, they say. Hi, everyone. This is Norman Horn. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the others in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as my own Faith Seeking Freedom podcast, where I take listener-submitted questions about liberty and give brief but engaging answers that you can use and share. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to bringing you content that you will love to learn from, and we appreciate your support. Now let's get back to the show, and I hope you check out the FSF podcast soon. From the Christian angle, why would Christians want to justify nationalism beyond the cultural element? I mean, surely any Christian pastor or Christian theologian who's worth their salt is going to make some sort of appeal to the Bible in some fashion. What do those arguments look like? As Christians, we should seek justice. We should seek the good. We should seek to honor God. Romans 13 says, the ruler should not be a terror, but should reward the good. And what does that look like? But rewarding Christianity. Again, this is what the nationalists argue, is that they would actually not see a lot of biblical grounding for a separation of church and state. I do, by the way, as a good Baptist, I think religious disestablishment is in the Bible, not just the Constitution. Uh-huh. But they would say that it's important for us to seek justice, and justice is a Christian virtue. And if we don't protect Christianity, we will become an unjust country. It's a pretty straightforward argument. They think that this is kind of a direct, almost command from God for us to Christianize our state and society. It's really a desire to resurrect Christendom, the idea that Christianity is our public ordering philosophy. That seems really bizarre to me because it doesn't seem like... I don't know, like maybe I'm a little jaded about the reputation and behavior of most Christians in our culture because it doesn't seem like not having officially Christian laws has made everything just go degenerate. I guess they would probably disagree with me, wouldn't they? They would probably think that, oh, well, Christians have lost a grip on the nation's laws and legal order and therefore that's why we have so many terrible behaviors and like, you know, everybody's just becoming libertines. Yeah, I mean, they invoke, say, the sexual revolution as proof that as we've lost our virtue and allowed, as you said, libertinism to kind of run amok, Mm. it's ruined our country. We're no longer who we were, and it's creating a culture of hedonism and indiscipline that will eventually undermine the foundations of our civilization. And look, I'm not a fan of the sexual revolution. I think there's a lot of really bad things there. But my critique of it is different than theirs, and it's not so much about whether or not it affects democracy, but how it affects families, how it affects individual lives, how it affects communities, and how we teach our children about sex. And I mean, there's all kinds of things we could say here, but it's not really about our national identity and our democracy, right? It's about Mm. something else. Yeah. What do you say about maybe a biblical theology of nations? So that's in chapter six of my book. The nations are there. They look different than what we mean when we use the word nation, and they don't play a very big role that I see in God's sort of redemptive plan. When the Bible talks about nations, there's really two different terms that we'll usually use, and this is in Greek and Hebrew, but there's one term usually for a kind of a kinship group, kind of a family or a social or cultural group, and there's a separate term for a political entity. 
That's interesting because a nationalist is somebody who wants those two things to overlap. Mm, yeah. The cultural group to equal the political entity. That's nationalism in a nutshell. But the Bible never really seems to imply that that's how things ought to be. In biblical times, the world was inhabited by this kind of motley collection of tribes, kingdoms, empires, city-states, people groups that overlapped and cross-cut, and there was just, it was a jumble. And the Bible sort of accepts that as a shape of the world, and it doesn't really have a political program demanding that we seek the overlap of people groups with sovereign entities. It just doesn't say that. That's mm. a 19th century innovation. It also says the nations are a drop in the bucket, right? That's in Isaiah. Again, as a patriot, I'm grateful for my nation. I like it. I love it. And, you know, you can argue that perhaps there's some sh version of the nations that sort of make it into the new creation. You can find hints of that revelation. But that just doesn't mean that our nations are sort of have an eschatological status or play a role in the redemption of the world or anything like that. Our nations are not that important in the grand scheme of things. Though we should love them, care for them, and seek their good, they're not that important. So... I assume, well, obviously I know because I've read the book, but I'll lead you to this. It's like Israel yeah. is not a template for what a nation should be, at yeah. least for Americans. No, it's not. And this is the key error made by generations of nationalists. Not just Americans, like every nationalist has looked at Israel. Any self-respecting nationalist calls their nation a chosen nation at some point or another. Hmm. And generations of Americans called America a new Israel, which it's not. That's an unbiblical idea. And today, the equivalent is to call America a Christian nation. And it's very, very common in evangelical circles around Memorial Day, 4th of July, to see Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name, mm, yeah. or Psalm 33.12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It's very common to see those verses put up with a star-spangled background, or to put up uh, alongside a cross in some way to imply that America is the nation whose God is the Lord. We Americans are the people called by God's name. It's very common in white evangelical circles to see that, and it's wrong, right? America's not in the Bible. We are not the people called by God's name, and, and we are not the nation whose God is the Lord. Those verses talk about the church. The church is the new Israel. America is not. The church is the new Israel. America is not. And I would want to say that over and over again in every church in America for 100 years. Because we've gotten this wrong so often. And we need to remind ourselves that our country, America, though it be good, is temporally good, not eternally good. And we need to hold it loosely. Are you familiar with the new work by Stephen Wolf? In fact, my review of Wolf's book will likely be published by the time this airs. So, yes. Okay, excellent. Can I get your comment on, because we're talking about nations in the Bible, it seems like a good... I don't know, a quarter of his argument has to do with the fact that he doesn't believe that nations are a post-fall phenomenon, I think, if I'm understanding his position correctly. That's right. Yeah, he argues that we have natural affinities with similar people. We are naturally drawn to be with similar people. And because those affinities, he says, are natural, therefore they're good. And we should cultivate that and we should go with it. We should embrace tribalism. He doesn't actually use that word, but that's, I think, what he's getting at. We should embrace our tribalism, membership in groups with similar people. He says similar ethnicities. He's got his own definition of what an ethnicity is. And that's the foundation of nationalism. It was true in the garden. It was true in the sort of pre-fall world. And therefore, it's true in the post-fall world that it's good to embrace life in groups with similar people. And that's what nations should be in Wolf's argument. I just have to chuckle. What does anybody mean by similar? 
and affinity. And like, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm just highly individualistic. And I'm like, well, of course, this is more of a 90s kid sort of thing to say. But like, what about all Apple users in the 90s? Like, we yeah. could form our own little <laughs> tribe. And it's like this whole idea of like people similar to you, like, maybe that's just part of the problem of it is that there's the defining characteristic that somebody has to choose and other people don't get to choose. Yeah. But it just seems very arbitrary to me in some ways. And that's my argument in chapter four of my book is like one of the problems with nationalism is that depending upon the principle, the criterion of similarity, nations are going to look radically different. Do you mean similar religion, similar ethnicity, similar skin color, similar culture, norms? There's a dozens of different principles you could choose to define your nation around. Now, Yoram Hazoni says it's either language or religion. That's kind of his answer. But mm. again, why does he get to say? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Like, as, as you just said, like, well, shouldn't we get a voice in this? <laughs> what if you decide? know multiple languages and like the whole yeah. group, like we're going to make our nation about everybody who knows two to three languages. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'd love to have a nation of Star Wars fans. <laughs> in Wolf's book, he has this kind of extended description of what he means. And he talks about customs and norms and values and land and history. And he's got this kind of long thing. Yeah. But the thing is, the thicker the principle is, and in, I think in his book is pretty thick, the smaller the group is. Because finding the number of people who overlap in all of those things, you're yeah. talking about a very small crowd. And so maybe it's just your neighborhood or your extended family. Like those are the people who, who are most similar to me. And in which case, this whole thing is a silly exercise in talking about our extended families. So nationalism collapses as soon as you ask a few questions like this. Like, what do you mean by similarity? Which principle? Who gets to say? How are you going to draw borders around yeah. this? The borders are fuzzy. They're blurry. They change all the time. Our cultures change constantly. So yeah. how is yeah. this the foundation for our political order? Is this a ludicrous idea? Yeah. When people talk about culture and like, oh, we have to have these shared cultural norms. And I forget one of the other words you were using there. But is it fair that the left media tends to characterize a lot of white people who are nationalists as using coded language for like race baiting or being racist. Because it does seem like we don't hear overt, this is a white country anymore from at least the really prominent nationalists. It is more of the language that you're telling us that they're using. It's more like, oh, we have a shared culture, we have a shared history, we have a shared this, a shared that. And maybe just based on what you said earlier about them being racialized, okay, no judgment on whether they're racist, but that's just their conception. And it happens to just look a lot like white Christianity. Yeah. So first, yes, the left media, as you put it, and say other progressive critics routinely caricature Christian nationalism and I think probably overplay the racial aspect of it. I would highlight a couple of books written 15 years ago by some journalists, actually, there were journalists who were the first to write about Christian nationalism, and they did a disservice by picking extreme examples and kind of exaggerating how bad this stuff is. And that's why a lot of people on the right are pretty dismissive of the critique, because they know that the left-wing critique is pretty unreliable and exaggerated, hmm. which is why I came along and I tried to offer a more, I'd say, appreciative or loving critique or rebuke from within as a conservative in an attempt to say, no, 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 there really are some problems here. Set aside the leftist critique. Here's a critique that I hope is more reliable. Now, all of that said, I also want to acknowledge, you brought up Stephen Wolf's book, that the racial aspect is getting a bit more pronounced, I'd say in just recent years, even recent months. 
Mm. Wolf's book comes pretty close. He doesn't use the word race, he, but he does talk about ethnicity and blood and ancestry as part of our ethnic identity. And he says shared blood and shared ancestry is part of the affinity we should cultivate and that the tribe has the right to exclude outsiders. And if you apply that to America, it sounds a lot like white nationalism. Mm. I've heard him talk on his podcast. He officially disavows that. But like, how does it not equal white nationalism when you yeah. talk about shared blood, shared ancestry, yeah. and excluding outsiders? Looks like, like a duck, walks like a duck. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Early on in your book, you actually have this quote, and I think it's really maybe a good jumping point for us to end this conversation and like, well, what do we do about this? You say... If you want to oppose nationalism most effectively, you need to be a patriot. Patriotism is the best guardrail against it. Let's go into that a little bit. Because sometimes it'd be like, wait, what do you mean? I thought being a patriot meant being a nationalist. That's what a lot of people sort of connect those to be. So for you, what does it mean to be a patriot that is against nationalism? Yeah, so I talked earlier about having gratitude for our country and having love that desires the good of our country. And if you truly desire the good of our country, you'll pursue justice and equality for all Americans, not just for your tribe, not just for people who are similar to you. And you will understand that our country is at its best when we live up to the story of our creed of liberty and equality for all. I think it's what loving America looks like. It's inhabiting that story, the story of our sort of ever improving progress towards liberty and equality for all, taking responsibility for that story, taking that story to its next chapter in your life and in coming years, working to make that the best definition of our country. That's what it means to be a patriot. And that's like kryptonite to nationalism, <laughs> right? It's you will, by definition, work against that more exclusivist understanding of what our country is. And you'll be more welcoming of cultural change because you're going to prioritize keeping the creed and our story first and foremost, not our culture. Would you qualify or classify Trump as a nationalist? I absolutely would. He himself embraced the label in 2018 and the way he talks about America and American greatness. He almost never talks about liberty or freedom or equality. This is not in his language. When he talks about America, it's about our culture, our values, our, our heritage, and our greatness. And that's the kind of rhetorical reservoir that a nationalist draws from, not the ideals. The mm. ideals, I think, tend to be absent from how he talks about America. So I hear phrases like that, and this is where I get kind of like hung up a little bit. When somebody like Trump, who will get up and talk about our heritage and our history and those things, and I'm thinking, oh, well, isn't that what America's all about? You say he doesn't use the word freedom a lot or hardly ever. Well, isn't our heritage that we are a free country? And so why isn't that what he's referring to? Or is it just that it's that vague enough for him to appeal to the nationalist crowd while also not looking like he's only appealing to them? Yeah, so to be clear, I think Trump himself probably does not think through his own ideology very carefully. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but the rhetorical habits I'm talking about, they're not accidental and they are consistent. No matter how much Trump talks off the cuff, he is pretty consistent about this stuff and how he talks about America. Mm, okay. And I think it's not an accident. Now, when you say heritage, it's just vague enough that anybody can hear whatever they want to in heritage. Anybody, including white nationalists, they can hear their agenda in heritage. Because if you look at American history pre-1960, oh my gosh, white nationalism was all over the place. It's definitely part of our okay. heritage. Right? And so a word like heritage is such a wiggle word that does allow people to hear whatever they want to in that. 
And if you talk instead about creed, liberty, equality, those are a little bit more specific and you can't appeal to white nationalism and to the creed of liberty and equality. Okay. So maybe I'm conflating or somehow confusing when I hear those things that when we talk about America's heritage, that it is not those things such as liberty, justice for all, like the creedal American ideal, right? Is that sort of why this gets really muddled and confusing for a lot of people who are like really big on American ideals, but also don't want to be seen as nationalists? Because <laughs> like, it seems like it's so confusing to me sometimes. It's just like, well, wait, that is our heritage. Oh, yeah. wait, no, I can't use that word because that's a white nationalist word. Or something. Yeah. Well, look, rhetorical vagueness is the tool of every good politician, right? They just want to appeal to these kind of big, vast words that are maybe emotionally laden, but really allow us to fill in the gaps. You never look to politicians for ideological consistency. I choose to not reuse the word heritage a lot. As somebody put it to me, the word heritage usually means somebody's trying to weaponize the past mm. and kind of mine the past for some chosen identity trait and say, this is our heritage, and so we need to be true to that today. And I just think that's a very unhelpful way to treat, yeah, okay. to treat history. So if I'm going to talk about liberty and equality, I'll just use those words, or I'll say the creed or something like that, and heritage just gets a bit messy. Yeah, okay. Well, so... Paul, I uh, know you have two other books coming out on this topic, and I know that the second book about the progressive left, I'm sure I will absolutely love to pick up and (laughs) and read because I think you and I also probably have a shared (laughs) disdain for the shenanigans happening on the left. But I'm really glad we got to talk a little bit about this book here today. And I have to say to our listeners, we have barely scratched the surface of Paul's excellent book. This is a very thorough, well-researched, It's not super long, but it's also not like only 120 pages. Paul, you've written just such an excellent work for us to understand this phenomenon. And like you said, you're writing from your own political quadrant, if you will. So I really appreciate your work. Where can people find you online? First, thanks so much for the kind words. I really appreciate that. I am still, for the moment, on Twitter at PaulDMiller2. We'll see how much longer that lasts, but that's where I am. <laughs> and uh, I'd appreciate to interact with you, with your listeners or anybody there. And again, I appreciate you letting me on your show. Well, that's great. I have to say, though, I thought that was going to be my last question, but why do you think you might not be on Twitter for very long? Oh, I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter, and it's usually more hate than love these days. Just as a platform, it's a great way to advertise the writing, but I'm seeing less and less use for any other reason. Uh, okay. And there's more important kinds of writing to do in books and columns and articles. So that's kind of where I'm trying to spend my time. Yeah, fair enough. No, that's great. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Hey, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.